On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Alf Ren. To begin with, I mean, I think that you're right on the money. I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. I'm an academic. So, I mean, I, saw, I sometimes catch myself when somebody suggests something and they not, they're not even a PhD. And, I'm, I'm a, and then I'm ashamed of my own reaction because I shouldn't be that arrogant. But I'm trained as kind of an academic who thinks that only degrees matter. Alf, thanks for making time. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. So let's do this. Teach us how to pronounce your last name correctly, and then let's do uh, the 30-second elevator pitch on your on your career so far. Well, my name is Alf Ren, and that last name you would probably pronounce Ren because it's spelled R-E-H-N. And I am currently the Professor of Innovation, Design, and Management at the University of Southern Denmark. And in addition, kind of an all-rounder when it comes to innovation issues. That's great. Um, So um, when did you find out that you were on the Thinkers 50 list? Uh, I actually got a mail uh, from uh, the people who run it and said, hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, You're on this list. And... uh, uh, hope you like it. And I mean, I'm I'm so vain that of course I like being listed, but uh, <laughs> it was a kind of, uh, life-changing is a big word for it, but it, it was a tumultuous experience because all of a sudden I'm written up in newspapers and magazines and people start asking me questions about this, that, and the other. Um, but it's it's been an interesting journey. I bet. And now... Um... Tell us a little bit, you've got a couple of books out already and you've got another one coming Mm -hmm. next year. Tell us about the new one coming out. Well, uh, that's a long, long project actually for me. It's, uh, It's a book I feel like written three times already. It started out kind of as a follow-up to uh, a book I wrote many years ago called Dangerous Ideas, uh, and it was kind of which was more about creativity, and this was supposed to be more about how to translate more challenging ideas into really kind of uh, revolutionary or radical innovations. But over the years, because I've been writing this for a couple of years now, it kind of transformed into more of a critique of. Uh, the kind of simplistic ways to look at innovation. I became more and more angry at uh, kind of the the silliness sometimes referred to as innovation. So an example I've often used is uh, there there, there are a pair of socks you can buy these days, socks which are Internet of Things enabled. They're regular black socks, but they have sensors in them that could talk to their phone, to a person's phone, and, and tell the phone whether they've been washed enough or too much. So literally, it's a pair of socks which can talk to your phone and tell you if they're not black enough any longer. Now, this is just stupid. I mean, normally, I can tell if my socks aren't black enough by looking at the socks. I don't need an app for this. And smart people, coders, designers, product development people, have spent time on this, and probably somewhere a business angel has spent money on this. All the while, we have these really big problems, wicked problems in in society to solve. 
So I wanted to kind of write about why is this happening? Why aren't we really doing the, the really challenging ideas any longer? Why is so much kind of become fairly superficial? And I realized that dovetailed nicely into kind of the stuff I'd seen about how innovation cultures can become kind of almost tired of innovation, how people kind of lose their spark and what we can do to rekindle it. So uh, my publisher decided to call it Innovation for the Fatigued, uh, which I wasn't thrilled with at first, but now grown to kind of like. And uh, it's kind of about uh, telling people, okay, we need to have a new conversation about innovation that takes these uh, innovation fatigue seriously. So uh, tell us tell us a couple of the good stories or or give us a give mm -hmm. us a preview. <laughs> well, the thing I almost always open with is that you have to remember I've been working with innovation for like 15 years now. And I can remember when way back when I was a young professor, I was a full professor at the age of 31. I would kind of bound into corporations and go, hi, my name is Alf, and I'm here to work on your innovation project. And people would be so happy. I mean, you'd see them smile and get energized and so on. And I realized a few years back that I was still doing the same thing. I was bouncing into companies and going, hi, I'm Alf. I'm here to work on your innovation project. And they would go, oh, my God, not again. Really, you could see them get dejected, get get tired, get more uh, because they'd seen so many of us. They'd seen so many of the projects. They've heard the CEO talk about disruption for the umpteenth time, and they were tired. And the more I started digging into this, I found that there was lots of people with really great ideas in companies, really kind of meaty, strong ideas that felt that because nobody was listening to them, they just stopped. They didn't even try any longer. They kind of went, no, no, that's this seemingly isn't innovation. I won't bother. And um, just one story. Uh, I met in a crane company. I met this case where a guy had literally invented a great add-on to one of the major cranes that this company produced, really solving an important problem for the clients. And he tried to get it through the company's innovation competition several times. But because he wasn't one of those fancy engineers and he wasn't management folk, but he was one of those people in coveralls that don't really have that much of an education, they just laughed at his idea. It was kind of thrown out out of every kind of version of this innovation competition until they put a guy from marketing in the jury for the same competition. And all of a sudden he goes, oh my God, people are asking us to solve this problem every single week. Where has this idea been? At which point the R&D engineers go, oh, um, sorry, we didn't think it was important. And these are the kinds of problems I kind of like to, to kind of wrestle with. Not the, oh, what's the fanciest idea or who's most like Elon Musk, but more how many more of these lost ideas are there and how many ideas die in our organizations because we kind of try to stick to simplified and kind of uh, kind of technicolor versions of what innovation is. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like you hit on something so key that nobody listened to them, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of, uh, you know, regardless of, of how often history has pointed out that it's, it's typically an outsider, it's typically someone who doesn't suffer from mm -hmm. groupthink as much, that comes, mm -hmm. that comes to someone with the breakthroughs that have really changed things. Um, there is such a natural human discounting of, 
well, it couldn't be that great of an idea because of the source rather than mm -hmm. like a, a more of a meritocratic, yep. you know, mm -hmm. digestion of it. Uh, if someone listening is running an organization and they do want people, you know, maybe at the associate level, the frontline level mm -hmm. to have their ideas get heard. Have you seen other organizations be successful in having them get heard? Any examples? Oh, I mean, there are, of course, uh, examples. Tata, uh, the Tata group in India is doing fairly well with this. Higher in China are, are experimenting with this. And uh, and I have seen even kind of big banks in, in the US uh, do versions of this. But it often comes down to kind of that one VP or that, that one CEO who, who really makes it his or her task to dig this out. And I think it's tricky because you're right. It's, of course, always an outsider. But there's also this thing that we're taught in kind of magazines like Harvard Business Review or Fast Company that the outsider is going to be somebody quite extroverted, creative, <laughs> kind of kooky. Uh, we kind of expect that it's going to be one of these kind of fancy cowboys, somebody who looks uh, probably wears kind of Steve Jobs-like clothes and maybe leather trousers. <laughs> what it could be basically the Latina cleaning lady uh, who nobody listens to because, come on, she's just a cleaning lady. Uh, or it could be that little gray person in accounting who nobody really wants to talk to because they seem very boring. They can be anyone out there. Outsiders are just these wild Elon Musk characters. They can be in your organization right now. And sometimes, actually surprisingly often, it's the quietest people, the most beat down people, who when you then start pushing them and talking to them, have the greatest ideas. Because they have sat there kind of observed. They sat there and thought. They might be introverted. Introverted is actually introverts are actually very good at innovation. Uh, and not even have felt the need to really talk to anyone. And then when you go in and really start pushing them and say, hey, what's your input in this? How, what do you want to do? Uh, they can then actually really shake up the organization. So one one of the stories I love, which isn't a story I studied myself, but I got retold from a, a colleague who uh, worked at uh, Carlsberg, uh, the big Danish brewers, was what had happened when they tried to introduce a cider, Sommersby cider, which today is one of their real cash cows. And the person who suggested this idea was young and female and blonde and was not a brewer. I mean, literally, she didn't have a brewer's competence. Uh, she just knew what she liked to drink, and she knew what the Carlsberg were good at, and so she comes with this suggestion. And all the guys who had a brewing experience just laugh at her, literally. They just laugh at her, go, oh, my God, how cute. Nice of you to join and in and, and try with your ideas, but nobody wants to drink that uh, sugary, fruity stuff. But she just pushes and pushes, and she's a fighter, and, and somehow got a tiny amount of money to run a pilot study. And the person I talked to said, well, they basically just tried to pay her off. And then the pilot study becomes one of the biggest pilots they've ever had to totally rocks the uh, ROI. And, and all these brewers kind of immediately go, oh, uh, yeah, we, we saw that from the beginning. They, they literally couldn't even imagine or fathom that somebody without their competence, without their experience, a little blonde girl comes up with something so powerful. So they really need to rethink their entire approach to innovation. You know, 
that story is so interesting and it's so easy as the outsiders to to recognize the biases that kept those brewers mm -hmm. from recognizing when you think about the rest of us leaders who you know we we all like to think that we're so open-minded and we all like to pat ourselves on the back for being forward thinking mm -hmm. um but you know if you study any of the research we all have our blind spots um, if you had any advice for the rest of us who want to get better at uncovering our own blind spots and and undoing our biases, what what advice would you have? Well, to begin with, I mean, I think that you're right on the money. I mean, I'm I'm a professor, I'm an academic, so I mean, I saw I sometimes catch myself when somebody suggests something and they not they're not even a PhD, and I'm, I'm a, and then I'm ashamed <laughs> of my own reaction because I shouldn't be that arrogant, but I'm trained as kind of an academic who thinks that only degrees matter. That's very deep in our culture. So I try to be better. And, and what I've kind of said to kind of simplify it very much is I kind of talked about a five second rule and no, not the one about dropping food on your kitchen floor <laughs> and said, every time you kind of say no to an idea, every time you kind of bat away an idea uh, to say that will never work or we tried that in the 90s and it didn't work then either, just stop for a few seconds and ask yourself that quick question. Am I saying no because I, it's truly a bad idea? Or am I saying no because I don't like the person who brought up the idea, that I don't think that kind of person is bringing up the kind of ideas we're looking for? And I've stopped myself with this. I mean, I've stopped myself when I realized, oh, yeah, I know she's just one of the admin folk, but that's actually a really good idea. And I just may have reacted on her being part of admin, who administrators, who, who academics and professors rarely get on that well with. And I know CEOs who who have taken an active kind of approach to this and say, no, no, they will listen extra closely when they believe that somebody does not have the experience required to contribute. But that requires a really kind of focused twist of the mind. How do you listen extra closely when you believe the person does not have competence? Kind of a mental jujitsu right there. Yeah, it's uh, especially in the quest for efficiency. You know, leaders, mm -hmm. we get so praised for doing more with less and doing it faster. And uh, whether that's from the market or from investors or, or whoever, um, that, you know, the idea of, of separating out like idea contemplation from judgment about the idea, I feel like especially if mm. I get passionate about the direction I'm heading, uh, it, it is not a natural thing for me to stop and ask, what if I'm wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so oh. I think that's an interesting trigger of, you know, when my initial reaction is such and such that to go ding, 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 that's your trigger, Jess, to slow down. But I've, I've always maintained that we're, we're being tricked since school to believe that creativity somehow comes naturally to us. It doesn't. We, the brain doesn't want to be creative. The brain can be creative, but the brain always wants to try out their simple routines first. The brain always wants to go to the, the thing that demands least of it first. So actually, if we want to find creative ideas, that's actually hard work. We need to push ourselves, but we don't remember this in our day-to-day -day work. So we kind of let our brain and, and its cheating, lazy ways uh, have its way with us. Yeah, you know, um, I think about this, especially I'm going to pick on lawyers. I have a lot of lawyer friends and have a lot of respect <laughs> for parts of the profession. And uh, we spent so many hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think we counted up almost $2 million on legal um, mm -hmm. when we were running our investment fund. And 
I really came to find like, if we asked a question, can we do such and such that the immediate mm -hmm. answer was typically no. And if yeah. we asked the question, um, how can we, uh -huh. then, then all of a sudden that answer would get asked, which, which took work and took whiteboarding and took looking things yeah. up and typically multiple days of asking somebody else and coming back. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I mean, it's, it, yeah. No, no, it's I, and it's it's human nature. A good friend of mine is uh, he's the CEO of a real estate company, and in the Nordics uh, we have fairly long summer holidays, so it's quite normal that big corporations take in students and children and even kids uh, for summer jobs. And uh, normally, of course, the CEO has no maybe fixes a summer job for a mate, uh, but but doesn't really engage with the summer workers. But this guy. He said that no, no. He thinks this is actually a, a really good way to kind of shake him up. So he he always had lunch with the summer workers and and held kind of roundtables with them to to ask them to suggest new ideas. And then he goes up to his top executive team and goes, "Hey, we I had this idea from our summer workers about how we can speed up our rental business a lot. And this is the idea. And now can you go and execute it?" And they go, um, I'm sorry, but that's utterly impossible. We can't do that. And he goes, I'm sorry. I promised the summer worker we're doing this. I don't <laughs> care if it's impossible or not. And they go, okay. And the next meeting, they come back and say, well, we've actually downgraded from impossible to really hard. And he goes, progress, good. Now when you got, get to the point where it's just hard, uh, you can have a budget for it. And <laughs> And I love it, the enthusiasm with which he tells that story, because it was just about, he realized those summer workers could be the thing that shakes his executive team out of their doldrums. And he could be the medium that makes that kind of thing happen. And, and what, what uh, was the, the industry? What sector was that? Real estate. Uh, they're one of the Nordic's biggest real estate investors and also have a huge, uh, they rent properties. And uh, the summer workers really wanted... Uh, thought that it was stupid in this day and age of, well, Netflix and Spotify, that you would have to wait for several days, even weeks, to get a rental agreement. So they asked, why can't you get a rental agreement at the click of a button? Why, why would that, why would renting a place be so much more difficult? And today, you can actually rent one of their properties in, I think they've gotten it down to about 20 minutes uh, at the speediest, which for that business is pretty quick. That's incredible. That's great. It's, it only shows what people can do when somebody creates the framework and, and puts up that ambition for them. Yeah, I love it. Well, we're about up for time for part one of the interview here. Um, maybe to close off, tell us about one of the thinkers that you enjoy reading the most or listening to the most. Oh, there's so many. But uh, lately, I've been really into Francesca Gino. Uh, she is working a lot on curiosity and had a big piece in Harvard Business Review uh, on curiosity. And uh, that really uh, came at a great time for me. So she really kind of stoked my thinking and, and got, me, uh, got me thinking. And she's not been on the kind of Thinkers 50 proper uh, list, but she's, she's one of those that I really wait for for their arrival. Tom Peters is always fun to listen to, particularly when he's in cranky old man mode. And um, the number one guy of the Thinkers 50 to go out drinking with is always Marshall Goldsmith, the man with three livers. You'd think that uh, you can drink him under the table, but that old man has stamina. That old man has grit. 
Okay. Good good to know. Good to know. Well, everybody, please tune back in for uh, part two of our interview. We're going to be asking Alf more about the world of innovation. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He's former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.